Hello, everyone. Hello. Good evening. Thank you all very much for coming to this Middle East Center event today. Um, my name is Robert Lowe. I'm Deputy Director of the Middle East Center, and we're delighted to welcome Professor Penny Poda here to give us this lecture uh, tonight. Uh, welcome also to um, our friends and colleagues online. Thank you for joining us as well. Um, and you'll be very welcome to ask questions and join in the conversation uh, after the presentation. The running order is very straightforward. Eddie will speak for uh, 20 to 30 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time after that for questions and discussion uh, with the audience. Um, I think those are all the details I have to give for now, so I will move on to uh, Eddie's bio. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Potter, who is the Bamberger and Full Professor in the History of the Muslim Peoples in the Department of Islamic and Middle East Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He also serves as President of the Middle East and Islamic Studies Association for Israel, and he's a board member of MIDVIM, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. His areas of study include Egypt, inter-Arab relations, the Arab-Israel conflict, education and culture in the Middle East, and Israeli foreign policy. He's published and edited 12 books and more than 70 academic articles in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. And he's here to speak to us today on his latest book on Israel's covert relations in the Middle East, 1948 to 2020. Today it's been published in Hebrew. We have a copy of it here. And there are moves afoot to have it translated and published in English going forward. Thank you, Daniel. And to you. Welcome. All right, uh, thank you very much. Um, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Actually, it's a kind of a closure of a circle because I've been here uh, at the center three years ago and that was during the corona year. And unfortunately I had to leave after half a year. So, and I did plan, I mean, uh, I organized a conference which was meant to take place and it didn't eventually, and also give a lecture and it didn't take place eventually. So it's a kind, you know, as I said, uh, closing the circle. At that time, the book was not out. Now we have already the book. The book, uh, for the time being, it's in Hebrew, but um, I have a contract with Indiana University Press, and it will sometimes soon uh, uh, will uh, be published in English as well. I'm still looking for the money, but it will will get there as well. So anyway, um, what I'm going to present here is uh, something uh, which. Um, Actually, we have little information on that. We have a lot of information, of course, about Israel's foreign policy and so on, but about Israel covered relations in the Middle East, here and there we have information, but not something uh, systematically. And this is something that I've been working on that for something like, I would say five years. And I gained a lot of information, a lot of information. Uh, I would even say there, um, uh, a, a, you know, more than needed. You can look at the book. I mean, this is a very lengthy one and sometimes say too much information. Obviously the English version will be shorter, but anyway, um, that is uh, the final result of uh, my research. Now, if you... Um, <clears throat> okay. If you go uh, and uh, look at uh, the different, uh, uh, before I start here, uh, maybe a word about 
the content. Um, and you have to understand that it uh, includes uh, something like 13 countries and three minorities in the Middle East from 48 until almost today. So it is a very comprehensive book, which deals with a lot of actors in the Middle East and uh, even starts before 48 because some of the patterns and some of the personalities that did play a role in the current relations, they uh, were very much relevant in the post 1948 uh, period when Israel was established. So um, that's in terms of uh, the chronology and the subject. Now, in terms of uh, the subject matter or the historiographic aspect, I want to refer here to what I call the missing dimension. And here you can see it's a quotation taken from one of the sources, but it means generally that look at it, uh, let's look at it uh, together. Historians have a general tendency to pay too much attention to the evidence which survives and to make too little allowance for what does not. Intelligence has become a missing dimension. So it means, for example, I mean, I myself worked uh, a lot in the Israeli, British, American, Canadian archive. Now what you get is uh, mostly information that is being released uh, from the foreign office. And that is okay, but still, I mean, this is only a partial picture of uh, what uh, occurred. Because at the same time, many things uh, which occur, they occur behind the scenes and are being held by the intelligence. In Israel respect, we are talking mainly about the Mossad. Now, the Mossad is not only responsible you know, for intelligence and operations and assassinations and so on, but it also, it has a special unit that deals with relations with countries that we, Israel, do not have diplomatic relations with. So the foreign office is responsible for the formal relations and the Mossad is responsible for the informal relations. And as a result of that, uh, most of the information that relates to uh, the informal relations does not lie with the foreign office and you would not find it in the documents of the foreign office. Okay, so if secret, what are the sources? Now for the students, it might be interesting to look at uh, the sources. Now, obviously one is what I just mentioned. Yes? I thought it was kind of a remark, a comment or something like that. Anyway, so the archival material. So that is obvious and I mentioned it already. Let's go beyond it. The leaked confidential documents, which we call the WikiLeaks. Now, many of the um, scholars and students, they do not use, especially in America, because it's not allowed legally, but still others very much use them. And when you use them, you find them very useful because they are not very systematic, they are not very organized, but you can use them and sometimes you'll be surprised to find a lot of material. And with relations to Israel's secret relations, I found quite a lot, especially about Israel's relations in, with Gulf countries. So that is an important source. Media sources, information leaked to the media. Uh, sometimes this is an underrated source, uh, but you do find a lot of material. You can go to the 50s and the 60s and 70s and find out there information 
which at that time was maybe interesting and was a hit, but nevertheless was forgotten. And eventually when you go back, you also are in a situation to see to what extent it is accurate or not, but still it is a very important source. Memoirs of people involved in the events, obviously this is something that we all use. And finally, the personal interviews of people involved in the clandestine activities. And I'm talking about more than 100 interviews with Mossad people, intelligence, foreign office. I mean, all of them that were willing to talk. Not everyone is willing to talk, but here I had a big surprise. And that is that many people wanted very much to talk because they did something significant and nobody knows about it. And, you know, after being retired and so on, they want to tell their story. Some of them even publish memoirs, that happens as well. It goes through censorship, but still you have access here to a lot of untold and unknown information. I mean, it, it's funny to the extent that after the book was published and I didn't get to all the relevant people, some of them approached me and they wanted to come and tell me their story. And that's, of course, an information which is not included in the evil version, but hopefully will be included then in the English version. Okay, now let's go into some of the major theses of uh, the book. Uh, this is a kind of a summary or a conclusion. Israel was not as isolated as described in uh, uh, the accepted Israeli historiography and as claimed by its decision makers. That is very important because most of, especially the Israelis were, were brought up according to the Zionists and the Israeli historiography. Uh, we are being described and we describe ourselves as people dwelling alone. This is a phrase that appears in the Bible and in Hebrew it's called Am Levadad Ishkon. And it means that nobody likes us, nobody wants us and we are isolated. And of course, it is connected with the Jewish history in the diaspora, and, but also when we came to the Middle East and we were isolated because all the Arab states, most of them, they did not recognize us, they were not willing to cooperate with us. And in some respect, uh, this is true. Uh, but at the same time, what I'm showing is that behind the scenes, a lot of things did happen. And therefore, Israel was not as isolated as it as the decision makers sometimes claim. Second, in its quest for allies in the Middle East, Israel's policy suffered from what I term the mistress syndrome, I'll explain it later, which was a result of the Arab or the Middle East state's unwillingness to publicly expose the relations due to reasons explained below. Okay, we'll see that in a minute. Next, as time went by in the post-1979 Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty, the Oslo Accord, and particularly the Abraham Accord in 2020, more and more countries are willing to expose their relations with Israel, which turns into a recognized partner. So therefore, what I'm showing is a kind, it's, it's a process, a process that went along more than 70 years, that Israel is moving from a certain stage, which uh, is a stage of one who has relations mainly behind the scenes, and moving slowly by, uh, step by step into the open and having an open dialogue with at least some of the Arab states, not of course, not all of them. Next, the process takes place primarily between governments, 
as the public in general boycotts Israel. Still, the Abraham Accords brought to light a new warm version of normalization. And this is in contrast to the cold model with Egypt and Jordan. Usually we call uh, the peace treaty with Jordan and Egypt a cold peace. Now, since the Abraham Accords, we see a different kind of version because we see people-to-people -people activities between Israel and Bahrain, between Israel and the Emirates and Morocco. Now, it relies on many things that happen in between, something that I describe in the book. But still, it should be remembered that there is a big difference between the two kinds. I just published an article on the different types of normalizations between Israel and the Arab countries. So in general, we have three types. I'm not going to go into it now, but this is very much connected with uh, what happened since uh, the Abraham Accord. I'll give you just one example that will clarify it because maybe for you, it will, you'll see unique how unique or different it is. Since the signing of the agreement with Egypt, we are talking about more than 40 years, there has been no academic cooperation between Egyptians and Israelis, okay, for more than 40 years. I'm not allowed to enter into Egyptian universities. Egyptians are not coming to Israel. This semester, the previous one, that was the first time that I uh, held a course together with an Egyptian professor. And he came from the Emirates. I guess that he couldn't have come from Egypt himself. But from the Emirates, probably it was easier for him, but he's an Egyptian. And that is the first time that an Israeli, a Jewish Israeli, an Egyptian having a course together at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem or in Israel in general, okay? So look how strange or different, and this is in spite of the fact that you have peace between the two countries. So that's why I'm saying there is a difference between the cooperation between the government, which is quite wide and comprehensive, by the way, and deep, and on the other end, between the people, which is non-existent. Next, Israel's growing acceptance in the Middle East is not irreversible. It depends also on Israel's policy, particularly with regard to the Palestinian issue, including Jerusalem. And here comes to mind, of course, uh, history gives us uh, at least one example. Uh, during the second Palestinian Intifada, the year 2000, several Arab countries cut off uh, diplomatic relations with Israel. I'm talking about Morocco, Tunisia, Oman, Qatar, and Mauritania, five Arab countries. So, I mean, it is possible that if tension arise between the Israel and the Palestinian or another uprising, or certainly with connection to Jerusalem, it might hit the situation again, and that might lead to uh, the uh, severance of relations between the countries. Okay, I'm not going to go deep into that, but just very um, shortly and concisely about some features of uh, Israel in the region. Israel for many years was a kind of what we call a garrison state. And it means that the foreign policy was subject to national security consideration. Now, when you are in a state of war or in tension with the surrounding uh, countries, then you need to adopt a certain foreign policy which takes into account first and foremost the security consideration. And that is why, by the way, the Ministry of uh, Defense uh, is the most important institution in the decision-making process in Israel. 
It's not a foreign office, okay? But uh, because of the security consideration. It's a small country in terms of territory. Uh, well, that changed obviously in 1967, but until then uh, it was a very small country and also a very small population. Today, the situation is 10 million in Israel. So obviously we're talking about in a different uh, situation. Largely isolated and ostracized in the region. And again, that is, I'm trying to show a little bit of different reality, but you have to remember that what is important here is that there is a big difference between the reality and the image. And the image is very important, the perception. Usually the reality is less important than what people think. And in the people's mind, Israel is isolated. And one of the scholars, an Israeli one, and a very important one, Daniel Bartal, called it a siege mentality. So it's a mentality that derives from the diaspora when the Jews are lonely, alone, disliked, and so on, and they brought it into Israel. Search for superpower support in Israel is always, since the beginning, needed. Uh, this was a pillar of Israel's foreign policy to rely on a superpower. At the beginning, it was France. And since uh, after following 67, mainly the United States, the desire to belong syndrome, meaning that we want to be part of something. Uh, and the something can be NATO. It can be the Middle East Command. There was such a thing in the 50s trying, uh, the Western powers were trying to build Middle East Defense Organization, another one the Balkan Pact, the Baghdad Pact, different organizations that existed at one time or another, the common market, the EU, whatever. But there was a constant search in Israel's foreign policy. And finally, the search for possible allies in the Middle East region. And here where my books becomes the focus. I mean, I concentrated on that issue, trying to look at what Israel was trying to do in its search for allies in the Middle East. And as I said, I found a lot of information and we are talking about different countries. Now I'll show you if we, we are going to look, for example, at the map. The map is very important because I mean, you can see instantly, I mean, the situation of Israel in the Middle East in the 60s. And obviously uh, the red color is the most uh, significant and it covers all the countries that Israel uh, was at war with, uh, or hostilities or whatever. This is mainly led by Egypt, at that time Gamal Abdel Nasser, anyone who's familiar with the names, and the Arab nationalism, pan-Arabism, the desire to establish one Arab state and so on. Uh, in blue, you see countries that they had the diplomatic, still have diplomatic relations with Israel, only Turkey since 1949. Then the green is the countries that had a behind the scenes connection with Israel. So mainly on the periphery. So you see Iran, that's an interesting story of course, because Iran until 1979, until the Shah was deposed, had excellent relations with Israel. And in addition, uh, Ethiopia in Africa and on the Maghreb, uh, Morocco, uh, in the, the neighboring countries, uh, Jordan had the constant uh, connection with Israel. Also, we add to this in Iraq, you see 
the northern Kurds, the Kurds are a minority in Iraq and Israel cooperated with the Kurds against the central regime in Baghdad. And the yellow are countries which are preoccupied with their own problems, are less relevant to our um, discussion. So please remember this map because we'll come to another map which describes the situation at uh, present. Okay, now one word about Israel's key roles in the region. Now, part of the argument is that Israel is indeed part of the Middle East, not only geographically. It means that even if Israel was at war with its neighbors, it was playing different roles in the region. This is more connected with international relations, IR um, uh, material, but nevertheless, you can, I, I identified six role that Israel played in the region along the years. And in the book, I give different examples whenever I deal with a specific country. Anyway, in general, unifying means that uh, the Arab states, um, Israel, whenever it was a common enemy, considered a common enemy, it was a unifying factor among the Arab countries. Conversely, Israel was also a divisive element, and that was since the signing of any agreements. For example, the signing of the peace agreement within Egypt and Israel in 1979, that caused the divisions among the Arab countries. Egypt was, if you know, boycotted by all the Arab countries, expelled from the Arab League, and so on. So that was a major shift. Israel also plays the role of um, uh, intruding the Arab countries, meaning in the internal affairs of other Middle Eastern states. Uh, it means that not, it was not often, it didn't happen often, but on certain occasion, Israel did play a role in the internal affair. Uh, the very well-known example is of course, the Lebanese war 1982, when Israel obviously had a desire and played a role in placing Bashir Jumail uh, as president of Lebanon, and more and more. And obviously, it mean, eventually it was a huge failure and a disaster. But anyway, that was an attempt to intrude, to intervene in the local affairs of Lebanon. Encouraging or accelerating processes, uh, Israel, the fact it's existent, no doubt, helped in different uh, processes. One of them, an example, Israel did not form, did not establish the Palestinian National Movement. The Palestinian National Movement was established a long time ago on its own, but nevertheless, the fact that the Palestinian fought against Israel, it accelerated or strengthened the Palestinian nationalism. And that is a fact of life. I mean, usually all national movements, I mean, they strengthen their identity by identifying a certain enemy. That happened, for example, with the British mandate in Iraq, uh, the French mandate in Syria, uh, the, the British mandate in Israel, and so on. Balancer, uh, Israel is balancing, uh, has the role of a balancer in the Middle Eastern system against hegemonic power. For example, if Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt is trying to achieve a hegemonic position in the Middle East, so Israel 
will try to coordinate or to cooperate with other countries in the Middle East against Nasser and Nasserism. The same logic applies against Saddam Hussein. The same logic applies in recent years, of course. Israel trying to cooperate with the Gulf countries against a common enemy, which is Iran. Okay, so the, the idea that you do have common enemies and therefore you need to look for them in the region in order to resist them. And finally, mediator. Uh, this is very interesting because it comes um, in, uh, in my book in, on many occasions. I, I wasn't even a little bit surprised to see how common was it. And the fact that the Arab and the Middle Eastern state, they looked for Israel in order to gain the support of Israel in the United States. And that is because they consider the Jewish lobby as an important factor in the American decision maker. And therefore they wanna approach Israel in order to reach the United States. This is something that was very much relevant to the Gulf countries, for example, but not only. I found it with Jordan and with Egypt and even Morocco and Israel always tried to do it best. It not always succeeded, but nevertheless, it was effective. Okay, now when we come here to a very, um, I would say to some extent controversial term that uh, if you want, uh, we can elaborate on that later on, but I discussed uh, to call it the mistress uh, syndrome. And let me explain what it means. It means that secret and behind the scenes cooperation, what uh, is called in the literature, quiet diplomacy. What is the main disadvantage? It cannot be revealed and therefore does not strengthen Israel's international legitimacy. But the fact of life was that if there were state and minorities who were willing to cooperate behind the scenes, uh, sorry, to cooperate with Israel, usually they insisted that it will not be known because of legitimacy problems, because of internal divisions, because of many considerations but that was a very important thing. And sometimes when the information was leaked uh, to the media, well, the, usually um, the connection stopped, even for a short while, but there was a kind of a punishment for that. Second, the existence of mutual interest, which make the enemy of my enemy, my friend. Now this logic applies almost anywhere, but maybe in the Middle East even more so, the fact that you look for allies all the time and coalitions are changing all the time, even among the Arab states. I don't know how much you know about the Arab state, but if you take, for example, Qatar and the boycott of the Gulf countries of Qatar a few years ago, well, it ended. It ended without achieving any of the target uh, that those countries aimed at. So coalitions are changing and the interests are changing. Relationships usually do not last long as they rely on transient interest, yet occasionally they may last for long. Two countries that they lasted for long is Jordan and Morocco. If we'll have time, I'll give you a few examples, but in most of the cases, the cooperation, the cooperation did not last for long. It lasted as long as the interests were valid. And Immediately afterwards, they vanished and the cooperation ended. 
Usually Israel preferred to cooperate with states, not with the minorities. Um, although there was a debate in the foreign office about, I mean, what are the advantages? But the bottom line was that a state has sovereignty. State has intelligence apparatus. A state has an army, has institutions. And therefore, it's better to operate or to cooperate with states. While minority, although there are common interests, because there are minorities, and the Jews consider themselves, of course, a minority in the Middle East. So therefore, there is a lot to cooperate with other minorities, like the Christians in Lebanon, like the Jews and others. But at the same time, it's very hard for them to deliver. And when you look at the Maronites in Lebanon, the Kurds in Iraq, I mean, there were important episodes in the cooperation with them, but they never delivered. That is a fact of life. Institutional responsibility of the Mossad, I mentioned it before, it is called Tevel. Yet occasionally the Foreign Office, the Ministry of Defense, Shabak, Prime Minister, Personal Envoys, third party intermediaries, journalists and more, they, they take part in the clandestine activity. But the result is institutional rivalry. That is the result. And on many occasions you see some of them even personal rivalries. You know, everyone wants to succeed. Everyone wants to achieve something. For example, when you look at the Abraham Accords, you know what, the Foreign Office and the Mossad and the other parts of the, the, the Prime Minister officer, all of them took responsibility for the achievement. You know, when it fails, nobody wants to take responsibility, but when it succeeds, so obviously, so there is a rivalry between the institutions, but the main element who's leading usually and traditionally the cooperation, as I said before, is the Mossad. Advantages, as long as kept secret, cannot hurt their party's legitimacy, strengthen trust between the parties, while leaks, tend to create mistrust and suspicion, okay? All right, now I, I guess that I don't have too much time in order to go over all these quotations. I just wanted to show you at least one or two examples on what this term is based, the mistress syndrome. Look at the first one, for example, and that is a quotation taken from Ben-Gurion, the prime minister himself, saying in the 60s, on Israeli-Turkish relation. They, the Turks, have always treated us as one treats a mistress and not as a partners in an openly avowed marriage. Okay? And that goes on and on. I mean, the people at that time, that's how they felt. And let me give you another one, the final one. And that's, I found in an autobiography of the general director of the foreign office, which was published two years ago, 2021. Looks what he is writing. Our interlocutors did not want to admit in the existence of broad daylight public relations. We would get to the meetings, not from the front door, but from the workers entrance for the fear of leaks and the street response. In time, we realized that Israel would have to be the mistress and not the legal wife. Okay, so that's the position or that the attitude of how they looked at the things. Now, if we go to the Abraham Accords 2020, 
This is the map of 2021. Then what we see is a major change. And I think that, first of all, let's explain why it happened. One is uh, that some of the countries that did cooperate with us, uh, with Israel behind the scenes, they realized that the fears that hold, held them back in the past are probably less relevant. Already there is peace agreement with Egypt, with Jordan, the Palestinian side, the Oslo agreement and so on. So they felt in a better position. More than that, some of them, they felt strong enough in terms of legitimacy in order to do that. And finally, the Americans gave them a very important incentive. I mean, the Emirates, for example, they got uh, the approval to get the F-35 um, fighter. Uh, Morocco, for example, received the American assurance that the Western Sahara is part of Morocco, which was an enormous issue for the Moroccans for many years. They tried to obtain it with the help of Israel, by the way, along the years, unsuccessfully. And here, when Trump was willing to offer that, so for them, they were willing to go all the way. But if we take into account and we see what happened between all those countries, Bahrain, Emirates, and Morocco, along the years, then we understand how deep was that. And therefore, once they made the decision, they went all the way. And therefore, you do have cooperation on the economic and even on the cultural uh, fields uh, in contrast to the other countries. Now, okay, so when you look at the map, so it's not only the Abraham Accord because it's even more than that, but it's quite clear that there is a big change. First of all, you see much more the blue color, which now covers not only Turkey as in the 60s, but also, well, first of all, these are the former Soviet Union. So let's, we are not going to talk about them, but in the Middle East, so obviously Morocco on the one hand, Egypt, obviously, then you have Sudan and South Sudan and Ethiopia and Jordan, okay? and the United Arab Emirates, and of course, Bahrain. All these countries, they have diplomatic relations with Israel. Then the red one, which I'm not diminishing, is still very important, of course, maybe the most important in terms of security is Iran, which obviously since 79 changed completely, and Syria, and the Houthis in Yemen, in addition, of course, it's very small. You can't see it, but it's the Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in Gaza. And within the green color, you have those countries that continue to cooperate still only behind the scenes. And these are Oman and Saudi Arabia. And the yellow are countries which are preoccupied with their own problems in the post-Arab spring period, uh, internal rebellions and so on. So they are less relevant to our discussion. Anyway, this is a different picture, of course, and it has changed along the year, okay? All right, so now one word about uh, why Middle East states and minorities cooperate with Israel. 
So look, I mean, this is a very general discussion, obviously, because I have to take all the countries and the minorities into account and try to summarize it. All right. Common enemies, we mentioned it before. In Arabic, it is called Adu Adui, Sadiqi, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Common interest, we mentioned that before as well. Need for Israel's capabilities, military, economic, and intelligence. Israel helped a lot to those countries. First of all, some countries and some minorities got uh, support in establishing their intelligence apparatus. Uh, Morocco, for example, Iran before 79, uh, the Kurds in Iraq and others as well. Uh, Israel uh, supported by um, uh, selling arms and ammunition. Uh, sometimes um, this uh, ammunition mostly uh, was manufactured by Israel, but some of them, funny as it sounds, I mean, it was a weaponry that was caught during war the Soviet made in 56 and 67, and then was given to other uh, countries or minorities. Now, think about it, for example, because if you want to keep it as a secret, you cannot give something that was manufactured in Israel or US made, because then it means that somebody will immediately will discover it. But once you give them Soviet made weapons, that makes it that the Soviets support them and that is legitimate. So that was a smart way of overcoming that problem, for example, when you support them militarily. But uh, of course, later on, there was the economic issue. Israel, for example, got its oil from Iran until 79. All, all of its oil came from Iran. And that was very useful from an Israeli point of view. So the Iranian-Israeli cooperation was very significant until uh, 79. Uh, there was even some medical cooperation because the medical establishment in Israel is considered uh, efficient and good. And therefore, especially those, you know, being part of the elite, they were willing to come to Israel and get treatment. Um, and we don't know a lot about it, but I did find information about Iranians and about even Saudis from the royal family. You know, when I'm talking about the early years that were secretly, they came to Israel and were treated in Israeli hospitals. Anyway, next, channel to get US military, financial and diplomatic support through the Jewish lobby and Israeli leaders. And here, as I said before, the question of perception is very important because sometimes come into the open the question, how strong is the Jewish lobby? I'm not dealing with that at all because for me, it's less important because those who wanted to deal with Israel thought that the Jewish lobby is very strong. And that was enough. And on certain occasion, the Jewish lobby did not succeed. But nevertheless, I mean, the perception was that Israel is strong, partially because of its connection to the United States and the role of the Jewish lobby. And therefore, that's why we want to have this relationship. I'll give you an example. The United Arab Emirates, we know about the Abraham Accord, but you don't know that in 1994, they approached the Israeli Prime Minister, Rabin, 
1994. We are talking about a little bit about the Oslo, after the Oslo Agreement, and secretly they asked the approval of Israel, the approval, it's not the right word, but the uh, support of Israel to get the approval or the permission of the Americans to sell them advanced fighters, the F-16. That was in 1994. Now, Rabin at that time said, the United Emirates are not an enemy of Israel. Why not? And he said, okay. So it meant that the United Emirates understood or saw that Israel is playing an important role with the United States and therefore we need to approach them, okay? So we are talking about 30 years before the whole issue of the F-35 that came into the open with the Abraham Accords. So you see here a pattern. So you wanna see the pattern? Go backwards to Saudi Arabia. In 1977, they twice sent emissaries to Israel secretly. Nobody knows about it, of course. But eventually, I mean, it became known that what they wanted is to get the Israeli acceptance of just the same, you know, getting the advanced American fighters. And we are talking about 1977, in a way, at the height of the conflict, even before the treaty with Egypt. So that gives you, you know, indication of things that happen all the time behind the scenes, okay? Now, what are the Israeli interests? Acquiring recognition and legitimacy. Because the Israelis, they have a strong sense of isolation, as I mentioned before, the biblical phrase, people dwelling alone, and because of the strong sense of insecurity, and this is regardless of the actual position, they want to have uh, their recognition. And if possible, a public one, because we are talking mainly about things that happen behind the scenes. So obviously we can ask, listen, if it was behind the scenes, how people know that it happens or how people will give them this recognition if they are not being recognized, at least formally. The answer to that is that, as a former Mossad head told me, among the security and intelligence agencies, what happened behind the scenes is very well known. So for example, if one country, Israel, is cooperating secretly with a certain country, most probably the United States will know. So it does play a role, although it's still informal. Common enemy, okay, the same logic of the Arab one. How many we need to finish soon? Yeah? Yeah, sure, no problem. Common enemies, or we mentioned that before, common interests we mentioned before, and the desire to acquire new markets for military and economic reasons. I think that we mentioned that as well before, but still, I think uh, that will give you a sense of the general picture. Now, in addition, I mentioned a few examples or a few case studies, but obviously there is much more information. The book is full of anecdotes and small stories, short stories, you know, which are very interesting by themselves, but in such a way you lose the big picture. So it was important for me, first of all, to give you the big picture and into it to insert some of the small stories. 
And I think that within the Q&A part, you know, if you want to ask me specific, specific uh, questions about specific countries, I'll be happy. I'll just give just another example and then final word, and then we'll finish my part. So the one example or the one additional example that I wanna give is Morocco. With Morocco, Israel held very interesting and a very uh, cordial relations, again, behind the scenes. Since the 50s, uh, in the 50s, there, there were the first wave of uh, Jewish immigration from Morocco. It was the largest Jewish uh, community. So everything was held behind the scenes. And, but afterwards, the connection between the intelligence uh, organization was established already in the mid 60s. Can you imagine? I mean, very early. So the Mossad uh, established uh, his branch in Morocco already in 1963. And since then, it continued along the whole years. And there were many examples of information that was delivered by the Moroccans. I'll give you two examples. One example, Morocco, had a short military confrontation with Algeria in 19, Algeria in 1963. The Moroccan captured a few Egyptian officers. They were fighting in Algeria because there was a connection between Egypt and Algeria. So uh, the Moroccans allowed the Israelis to interrogate the Egyptian officers. And in such a way, they gained a lot of information on the Egyptian army, which helped them in 1967. Okay, example. Another example. In Morocco, there were three, at least, if I'm not mistaken, um, Arab summits. In Casablanca, 65, in Fez, 81 and 82, and in Casablanca in 85, okay? In all of those occasions, the Moroccans allowed the Israel, well, first of all, in 65, they delivered Israel the protocols of the conference. Can you imagine? I mean, this is 65. We're talking about, you know, the protocols of the secret uh, talks held between the Arab president and prime ministers. Okay. And afterward, uh, the Israelis themselves, they came and they monitored the talks in the 80s. So here you have a very useful channel of uh, information, okay? And so and so. So that are uh, two just interesting episode in uh, Morocco-Israeli relations. Okay, so let me just say, it's not a conclusion because, well, I'm not going to go into that, but if you want, uh, please ask me a question. Um, I want to end with that quotation. Because what I felt at the end, as, as you could see, it's a thick book with a lot of information, but still the bottom line is that I feel that there are still many black holes. You simply don't know. I mean, uh, things might happen and people might keep it as a secret for many years and they don't reveal it. And therefore you are in a situation that as time goes by, you reveal more and more information and it would not be a surprise. I mean, if, you know, in the future, we'll reveal more about different countries and so on. And even more than that, let me say that, I mean, some of the countries that I haven't dealt with, like Syria and 
the PLO, for example, I'm willing to say something about it in a minute, but uh, I found quite a lot later on. I mean, it's not included in the book, but apparently there was quite a lot between these countries and the organization, the PLO, even before the Oslo agreements. So this quotation in many ways uh, epitomizes what I'm thinking about the whole subject. History is that certainty produced at the point where the imperfections of memory meet the inadequacies of documentation. And that is taken, you see, from whom? Julian Barnes, The Sense of an Ending, a Booker Prize winner uh, who is a very famous, um, but he's not an historian. But still, this quote very much fits what I'm describing. Okay, thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much. That was wonderfully rich and fascinating, clear and, and compelling. I'm sure that generated much interest and questions for our audience. If you are joining us online, please write a question you may have in the Q&A box. We have a couple there already, which we will pick up. If you have a question here in person, uh, please simply raise your hand. Um, and it'd be great if you could tell us uh, who you are. That'd be very helpful as well. Uh, we'll start in the room if we have any questions where you can take in here. Excuse me, you, you mentioned... Uh, we have a microphone usually table so people online can hear. Thank you. No, please. You actually, you, um, you mentioned Morocco. And, um, of course, uh, the relation has been gone, you know, uh, established from the 60s. Uh, is it because the... You know the the king um, uh, Hassan uh, had a um, an Israeli advisor or um, anything else. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Thank Can you. we take that direct the question on Morocco? Do you want me to yeah, answer directly? Well, obviously the the answer is. Um, a little bit more complicated than that, because first of all, the, the advisor that you are talking about is Andrea Zulai, and I don't remember exactly when he started, but I think it's perhaps in the late days of King Hassan, but in any case, we are not talking from the early period. So this is something that came later on. Anyway, but it is true if you want to say something broader than that and say, the role of the Jewish community in Morocco period, because this is something different that wasn't in all the other Arab countries. I mean, in the other Arab countries, there were Jewish communities who emigrated to Israel. This is true, but none of them were significant and played such a role in the local society. And therefore, uh, in Morocco, the situation was different. And it is also true that King Hassan himself, the father of the current king, he was, um, he was very close to, to the Jewish community in general. And you know what, it's even more than that because he considered himself, he wanted to see himself as a mediator in Israeli-Arab relations. And he, he offered his mediation time and again. It's quite amazing to see how many Israeli politicians uh, visited Morocco along the years. I mean, Shimon Peres, for example, he was at least three times secretly. Uh, and I'm talking about the 70s, the 80s and so on. 
Morocco, for example, I don't know if you know, but it played a crucial role in the, in the process that led to the signing of the agreement between Israel and Egypt. Because the first leg of the whole process was a meeting uh, between Israeli, uh, Moshe Dayan, the foreign minister, and Tuhami, who was the vice prime minister, the Egyptian one. And that was in the summer of 1977, completely secret, okay? And then they laid the ground for later Sadat's visit in Jerusalem in November 77, and then the rest is the story. But still, Morocco played a very important role in the mediation. So once he achieved that, he wanted, he was very much concerned about the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And he wanted so much to bring peace between the Israeli, the Israel and the Palestinians. And he haven't succeeded, but still there were a lot of meetings in Morocco between Israelis and Moroccans. And I would even say between Israelis and Palestinians, which were held uh, on Moroccan territory. And that was not a coincidence. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Thank you, Ray. We have a couple of questions online, which I'll just take, and then we have another one in the room. Uh, I'll go to the online questions. Uh, the first one is from Hamza Shaban. Thank you, Hamza, who asks, how likely is it for Israel and Saudi Arabia to normalize ties, especially during the current climate and with the current right-wing government in Israel? Do you want to take that one first, and then we'll move on to a related question, which means to put it in line. Okay. Israel-Saudi Arabia. Well, that's a big issue and a long history. And I think that one of the stories that haven't been told so far, first of all, I would advise or suggest maybe that anyone who's interested in Israeli-Saudi relations will look after an article of mine that appeared a few years ago. It is in English, in the Middle East Journal, and it deals with the history of the relations. I must admit that since then, I did find a lot of other new information, but nevertheless, there is a lot. And the bottom line is that I find that the whole issue of Israeli-Saudi relation is a missed opportunity, uh, especially on the Israeli side. And they haven't really grasped the magnitude of the change in the Saudi behavior. And that was already following 67. Actually, the Saudis accepted Israel in the 67 boundary. They were not willing to admit it openly, obviously. But nevertheless, they said it to British and American officials, and it was brought to the attention of the Israelis. And somehow the Israelis, they did not respond. And as, as I told you before, I mean, two emissaries were sent by Crown's uh, Prince Fahel already in the 70s, which by itself is a very interesting story, and nothing came out of it. And then you had the Fahel peace, peace plan in IDAU1. It was the first one to offer something. It was very vague, this is true, but still it was a kind of an indirect recognition of Israel. And obviously, of course, the 2002 Abdallah Initiative, which became the Arab Peace Plan. And there for the first time, not only Saudi Arabia, all of the Arab states in the Arab summit, they were willing to accept Israel in the 67 boundaries in return for the establishment of a Palestinian state is Jerusalem as its capital and to find acceptable solution to the refugee problem. Israel did not accept this plan. So therefore, there were opportunities between the two countries. Now, 
after the Abraham Accord, um, the Israeli government, especially Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, they looked at Saudi Arabia as, you know, the, uh, the diamond or, you know, the golden actor or the most important player that we want to include in the Abraham Accord. And that was the main aim. This is still the main aim. But as it seems right now, that uh, it's not going to happen in the near future. And we see that Saudi Arabia moved a little bit from the orbit of the normalization countries while uh, resuming diplomatic relations with Iran and all the rest. So Saudis, they prefer at the present to somewhat stand in the middle between these two poles, Iran and Israel, because they realize that probably they cannot cooperate with this specific government in Israel. And also, um, there are problems between Saudi Arabia and the United States. We have to admit that as well. So the prospects for an Israeli-Saudi recon reconciliation or normalization are not looking good at present, but we have to remember that the common interests are very much there because we do have to understand that Saudis, as Sunnis, part of the Hanbali scholarship, they are not willing to recognize the Shiites in Iran religiously. And that will not change. But at the same time, while they are afraid of an Iranian threat on their border, they are willing for the time being, you know, to reconcile. But that might be temporary as well. We don't know. As I said before, coalitions in the Middle East change very often. And here you have another example of a changing coalition. Thank you, Alain. Well, some big topics here, very, very brilliantly. And a uh, colleague online has asked if the slides re uh, recording will be shared from the event, and we are recording it, and it will be available on our website uh, following the event. Uh, to watch or listen again. And Andrew Rosenheim online has a question asking whether there are secret Iranian Israeli contacts now. Do you um, know? I don't know, for some reason, people uh, assume that if, you know, I write about the history of the contacts, I know what happens at present. Well, I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs> well, first of all, I would assume that there, there are none. But you know what? I mean, taking into account that I saw what happened in the past, I cannot negate anything, okay? And for example, whenever I see uh, reports about possible Israeli-Syrian contacts, you know what, I'm not negating it completely. You know, maybe, you know, maybe they're exploring something behind the scenes, who knows? I mean, I just uh, finished an article on the public and the secret Israeli-Syrian relations, and I saw something interesting. I mean, I, I must have well, I wasn't aware of it uh, when it occurred, of course, but between the year 2009 and 2011, there were really meaningful secret uh, Syrian-Israeli talks behind the scenes with American mediation. And there was already a draft agreement. And I'm talking about Netanyahu, okay? He expressed willingness to withdraw from the Golan Heights. The exact border is unclear, but nevertheless, 
He denied it, by the way, in his book. But nevertheless, we know from an American diplomat who has written about it, and he was the major architect of those talks, that it did happen. Now, what happened to the talks? The Arab Spring. Then what happened? The rebellion uh, in Syria, and of course, the brutality of the Syrian regime, it obviously demolished, destroyed the whole connection. And it was even thought that it's not appropriate or acceptable or legitimate to sign an agreement with Bashar al-Assad who made such atrocities in Syria. But if not for the train, you know, who knows where well, well, we were today in that respect. So I think that in general, we have to be cautious about these predictions, but at the same time, sorry, I don't know. Thank you, Eric. We're just about out of time. We have two more questions online and I think two in the room. Yes, so we'll take those four and then we'll close. I'll just finish off the online ones because it's probably neater that way. And two of them are following on on Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, Mehmet Arakan asks, is the current Iran-Saudi Arabia normalization weakening the Abraham Accords? What is the impact? And we have a take it through your work. Could you also kindly share the title of the article on Israel's normalizations that you mentioned? The title? I don't remember. I guess, but I guess that if you write my name in this journal, you'll yes, get journal. Uh, immediately. Uh, that's for the question about the title, about uh, Iranian Saudi. There's one thing that I, I do want to emphasize, because in Israel, it, it became very fashionable to say that Saudi Arabia disengaged itself from Israel and from the United States and is coming closer to Iran. No, I think it's a mistake. I think that what the Saudis are doing is what I call, it's a kind of an insurance policy. Or, you know, when you gamble, in, in, for example, in a horse race, and you gamble on the first two candidates, you know, you are not going to lose. So I think that what motivates them was first to end the Yemen civil war in which they, the Saudis and the Iranians were very much involved. This is one. And secondly, they understood, and this is again from secret talks probably with the Americans. This is according to the Wall Street Journal that they had the talks with the Americans and they wanted to have some security guarantees and they wanted to have the permission to build a nuclear uh, capability, civilian one indeed, but still, and the United States objected. So that's, they say maybe, okay, in such a situation, we will go and sign or not sign, but resume uh, diplomatic relation in such a way, we'll stand somewhere in the middle between these two camps. So I think that what they are doing, they are playing both sides. That's what they are doing. And it's not that they are negating one side on the expense of the other. This is how I see it. And I must accept uh, or agree that others might see it differently. But this is my take on the issue. Thank you, Ellie. I was hoping someone would ask about the Kurds, and I'm pleased to see that Jim Muir, hi Jim, thank you for your question, has asked, could you please give brief details of past Israeli involvement with the Iraqi Kurds, but especially how much is going on today? Yeah. Okay. 
Well, first of all, about um, the cooperation with the Kurds in the past, uh, that was quite uh, logical because um, Israel, uh, in order to help the Kurds in Iraq, if you look at the map, they need uh, to go through a certain uh, territory. Uh, look at the map here, right? So at that time, if you had relation, relations behind the scenes, but relations with Iraq, uh, the support uh, was uh, given through Iran, okay? So that worked very well. Um, and but the thing is that in 76, uh, Iran decided, uh, it was already in 75, he signed an agreement with Iraq. It's not connected to our subject nevertheless, but the result was the Iranian, they decided to cut off the connection with the Kurds because the Iranian themselves, they helped the, they helped the Kurds. So in such a way, we were not able any longer to help the Kurds and it stopped in 76. Now, about the question, what happens? Well, I think quite a lot, but we know very little. And I would just say, because this is something that did come out, that part of the oil that Israel received in recent years came from the Kurdish territories. And, but most of the Israeli oil comes from, if you would believe it or not, but from, yeah. From Azerbaijan, yeah, the small country of Azerbaijan, which is a close ally of Israel. And if you look at the geography, you can understand why. Thank you, Eli. And we have two questions in the room. Well, Mike, just says, let me start, please. Yes, if you have a question here. Thank you, please. Thank you for the discussion. It was great, actually, because for the Middle Eastern, as I am coming from the Middle East also, and also uh, I'm uh, a researcher in this uh, part of the world, a very hotbed in the world. So your book, the title, and everything you discuss here is very interesting. And uh, I was hope, like the person who asked uh, online, uh, to, her, to hear more about uh, the Iran-Israel um, possible uh, covert relation. As uh, there are rumors, uh, many rumors across the region, and uh, we hear from everywhere that there are some, uh, you know, uh, covert relation and even covert, uh, uh, you know, operation of Israeli inside Iran. Uh, I wish to hear more about that, that um, uh, I hope that you pay more in few sentences. Make it clear, you ask about Israel's covered operation in Iran or about Israel's possible covered relation? I, I mean more relationship. And uh, I have a specific question, actually, because we know that at the moment Iran is a country However, it is a hostile, quite hostile after the 1979 to Israel. But uh, it, they had some covert, you know, maybe cooperation uh, like the Iran gate in the 80s and uh, with US and Israel, with Iran. And also we are hearing also about this uh, kind of uh, co maybe cooperation, uh, the covert cooperation. Uh, and also we know that Iran is a hostile to Israel 
and vice versa. Iran at the moment has a progressive nuclear program and Israel says um, uh, many times that uh, it can stop Iran at any moment, but uh, Israel doesn't do anything. Uh, I want to know, um, this no response to Iran, uh, you know, nuclear uh, escalating uh, actually activities on nuclear facilities in Iran. Can you consider this uh, uh, act of Israel as a, a strategic gap towards Iran? According to what you have studied and you find, find out uh, during uh, the process of your writing your book, is it a strategic gap by Israel or something else? Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much for this valuable uh, in search. Uh, I just ask about the minority Kurds who are, uh, you have uh, cooperated with them since, and it is stopped in 65, 57 or 75 because of Iran cut its relationship and support for the Kurds and isn't, and uh, at the moment there are no cooperation between the Israel and Kurds in Iraq and, uh, and to what extent there is a cooperation or relation uh, with uh, Kurds in other parts of Kurdistan like uh, Iran and Syria and uh, Turkey, there is a, uh, like a big population of the Kurds in these countries, and you 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 say that we couldn't reach them because of Iran. You couldn't reach them. How you uh, import uh, like the oil from Kurdistan? Uh, so uh, this is my question. To what extent, uh, if there is a relation between the other parts, to what extent? Uh, economically and diplomatically and what else relation with them. Thank you. Thank you very much. So the response to the Iranian nuclear issue and Kurds around the region. Uh, first of all, a general remark. I'm sure that you can appreciate the fact that as you advance with the years, the little you know. Because if I go back, it's much easier because I have more sources. And people are willing to talk. Whenever I ask someone, let's say someone who works uh, in the Mossad, he will be willing to talk about things that happened between uh, before 30, 40, maybe 20 years. But for example, if I will ask, I mean, what happened since his retirement in recent years, he would never answer because he would be afraid uh, to reveal the sources or maybe hurt someone who is still alive or whatever. They have their own consideration and I have to respect it. And therefore, what I feel in general that, as I said before, I don't know a lot. In certain cases, I know when there are leaks or when some information has been released by this formally or not, but so that is an impediment. That is a problem that you have when you deal with a contemporary history in general, you have to take it into account. Now, in response, so I, I guess that I will a little bit disappoint you because I don't know. 
For example, if we talk about Israeli-Iran, I feel that I know quite a lot, I wouldn't say everything, but quite a lot about what was between Israel and Iran until 79. I know also a little bit about what happened in the 80s. I agree with you. There was secret uh, connection between the Israelis or secret agents and uh, Iranian, uh, it's not opposition, but let's say leading uh, Iranians who were opposed to the leader. And they sold them some ammunition. This is a known story, but you know what? In the big picture, it's not a big issue. Okay, and the quantities were very small in any case. But it is an interesting story that Israelis um, sold some weapons and ammunition uh, to the Iranian regime. Okay, now, since then, I know very little about what happened. And you know, I'm very usually cautious about these rumors or whatever, um, because I need, as a historian, I need to have some, at least some evidence, or at least to hear, um, um, to get the, the approval of at least two or three different sources, you know, that will validate a certain rumor. Otherwise, I mean, I cannot as a scholar rely on that. But you know, discuss it, you know, between us, but otherwise I would not put it in writing. So therefore I apologize, you know, but I don't know. Actually, I was. Uh, I wanted to know whether in your book uh, you have paid uh, to this kind of, uh, you know, covers relation even. Uh, not uh, we shouldn't use relation because uh, it is uh, it is temporary. If there would if there is there would be any connection between these two countries, for example. I wanted to know whether you have paid to this uh, in your book or not about this covered relation. Between Israel and Iran? Yeah. But you're talking about what period are you talking about? Uh, you know, after uh, the, um, after 1979. Okay, so that's exactly yes. what I'm saying, except for the episode, which is quite well known, of some Israeli attempt to sell ammunition to some opposition leaders. Otherwise, no, there is no information. No. No, no. Um, there is more information about Israeli-Turkish relations. Yes. Because that was something that I did manage to find some information and people were willing to talk about that in the 90s, for example. But you know what? If you ask me, for example, about Israeli-Turkish relations in uh, the 20,000 or the first decade of, uh, I would not know what to say, you know, because information has not been revealed. And that doesn't mean that nothing existed. It means that at that point, we don't know. Okay. We wait for the time. Okay. Now about the uh, this is a little bit a repetition of what I said before, but um, I think that um, the fact that the Iranian uh, signed the agreement with the Iraqi was highly significant because in many ways they uh, kicked the Israelis they don't kick Israelis from Iran. The Israelis in Iran stayed until 79. But what they did was they told them, you have to take out your representative from there. And in fact, the Iranian and the Israeli support to the CAD stopped at that point. Now, 
when you go, you move forward. So here and there, there was a connection. Some of it uh, was leaked uh, to the media. But in any case, I think that in most cases, it was not governmental. It was more uh, private companies that uh, tried to sell, this, to sell this or that to the church. The oil issue was a bigger issue. And if you look at the map, you can, if it, it goes from Iraqi, northern Iraq, okay, this is the Kyrgyz territory, it goes through Turkey to uh, a, one of the ports in Turkey, and from there, it goes to the Israel. Is the pipe is uh, closed. Yeah, the, yeah, the Turkish okay. pipe, yeah. So that means that the Turks, they cooperate, they must have cooperated with these things as well. And they were very much aware that that happened. So that is very interesting because, for example, when we talk about Israeli-Turkish relations during the Erdogan period, so obviously there was a lot of tension between the two countries, right? The Marmara affair and so on. But at the same time, commercial and trade continued without any interruption. And the amount of trade between the two countries was between five and six billion year annually. Is a law. So again, the, the, the leaders and the state, sometimes they know to differentiate between what is said in public and what is being done behind the scenes. But the fact is that a lot of times we don't know exactly what happened behind the scenes. And this is especially so when you talk about the last or the last decade or the last two decades. And you know, in the future, probably we'll know more, but at the same time. It's quite limited, our information. What about relation with the Rujava? With the Rujava Kurds? With the Azerbaijan in Syria? They are very strong. Yeah, they are very strong. And as I hinted before, I mean, the geography tells the whole story. And Israel is no doubt, first of all, is selling a lot of arms and ammunition. And this is being in the media. I mean, this is not a secret. We are talking about billions of dollars. Azerbaijan just opened an embassy uh, in uh, Israel. Uh, Israel had an embassy a long time before. So the Azeris uh, have no problems in uh, somehow exposing this relationship. And uh, you know that the Azeri, I mean, there is a large minority, Azeri minority in Iran. And this is also part of the problem. I mean, the Azeri-Iranian tense relations because of that minority. Uh, so that contributes. So no, I'm just not asking about Syrian Kurds. What's the relation with Syrian Kurds? I don't know of any. Again, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but I don't. Thank you. I'm sorry, we need to talk. It was, you'd be very welcome to talk to any afterwards, I'm sure. We'll have to go back in 20 years and you can you know, research on the present. And we, can, we can pick this up again. Um, a huge thank you to everyone who joined us. Thank you, everyone who's here in person, and thank you to everyone who is online. There's a large attendance online. Thank you so much for joining us and staying with us. Thank you to Nadine for organizing tonight's event. And we're so grateful to Ellie. It's been great to have you back at LSE and finally to be able to present in public because COVID presented it last time around, but three years later, it's been worth the wait. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Very, very grateful. Thank you, everyone.